us take our Bibles, and I want you to turn over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 23. We are uh, coming closer and closer to the end of the Gospel of Luke, and this will be, Lord willing, the final message on the cross itself from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. And so let's turn in our Bibles to Luke, chapter 23. If you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles we have around the auditorium for our guests, you'll find it at page number 626. Page 626, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, and I want to begin reading in verse number 44. In verse number 44, the Bible says, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, in the Jewish reckoning of time, that means 12 noon. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth, until the ninth hour, and the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. When Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things that were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. Just outside the wall that surrounded Jerusalem was a road that wound around the city. There by that road, passerbys could watch in clear view of the city's wall what was happening. And that's where the Romans crucified they're criminals. On this next slide, you'll see that road in this depiction of Jerusalem in the time of Christ. There was a road that outside the city wall wound around the city. The Romans always crucified at a place where they would get the, the biggest impact from the crucifixion. They wanted everyone to see what would happen to them if they were to disobey the Roman authorities. And so the Romans would crucify those slated for the ugliest of deaths, a death that was designed to make death as slow and as painful as they possibly could. And there, right beside the road, crosses would have human beings nailed to them who would slowly die over a period of a couple of days that it took crucifixion to kill an individual. Well, there's two locations that are circled in red that scholars today point to as the possible locations where Jesus Christ's crucifixion occurred. This one has buildings built over top it where you can't 
see what it would have resembled in the time of the first century. But this one has never been built upon. It was secured by the British Bible Society and preserved in a state that resembled the, what it would have looked like 2,000 years ago. And so whether the location on the north side or the west side is the, is the actual location, this location gives a present-day view of what it would have looked like. You see, just behind the place of Jesus' crucifixion, there was a rocky cliff that had the look of a skull. This next picture shows the location from the city wall, the road that wrapped around just outside the city wall, and the rocky cliff that was known as Skull Hill. In Hebrew, it was Golgotha. In Latin, it was Calvary. And there, Jesus Christ, on that most eventful of days, was taken by the Roman authorities, where God's best met man's worst. And everything that occurred that day is of extreme importance to us as followers of Jesus Christ. Everything is significant. Now, up to this point in our studies of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ from the Gospel of Luke, as well as from a couple of other references in the Gospels and other Gospels, we have focused mainly on what Jesus said and what people around the cross said. We have focused on not so much what they did to Jesus, we have avoided that because of the gruesomeness of it, but we have looked at the treatment he received, the mockery, the hatred, the, the, the way people reacted to him and treated him that day and what Jesus Christ said back to them that day. That's kind of been our focus in our, in our messages. We noted that from 9 o'clock in the morning till noon, Jesus Christ interacted with people around the cross. But then something happened at noon that marks the beginning of some cosmic events that go beyond the individuals around the cross or what Jesus Christ said in interaction with those individuals. But it focuses on things God did during the hours that Jesus Christ had my sins upon his back and what God the Father did in reaction to that and in judgment of Jesus Christ. God judging God. God reacting to God who became sin. My sin, not his sin, my sin. What did God do? One of the things God did at 12 noon is he turned the lights off. Darkness invaded the land of Israel at 12 noon. This is, a, this is a busy day. This is Passover. This is probably the busiest day of the year for Jerusalem. There are hundreds of thousands of visitors camped all around the city of Jerusalem. The priests are in the temple preparing for the sacrifice of thousands of animals that they're going to sacrifice that afternoon at around 3 o'clock. 
And they will be sacrificing animals for hours. And they're preparing for all of that. This is an extremely busy day. And all of a sudden, with no warning, God turns the lights out. This is a, this is a time in history where there are no artificial lights. There are no uh, power plants and electricity. You don't just flip the switch because the sun went down. All of a sudden, at noon, darkness invaded the land and everything stops. The best light you have is the little dim light from a flickering oil lamp that will give a little bit of a glow. And all of a sudden, everyone stops what they were doing. And from 12 noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, as Jesus Christ bore my sin, and God the Father turned his back on Jesus Christ, and God began to judge Jesus Christ, or it didn't begin, but the, the full power and weight of the judgment of, of God upon Jesus Christ became uh, so powerful and bizarre and weighty. And, and the sun wouldn't shine. And people are confused. People are afraid. People are panicking. We've never, it's, never, it's never happened like this before. And all of a sudden, the panic sets into the people. Shock and fear grip the land. And for three hours, there was no explanation. And to our knowledge, based on the biblical record, Jesus didn't utter a word. For three long hours, he hung in excruciating, painful silence as God the Father poured out the judgment for my sin upon Jesus Christ. Those three hours of darkness culminated at three o'clock in the afternoon when Jesus Christ cried out with a loud voice. Crucified people don't say anything with a loud voice after they've been on the cross for six hours. To study the process of death through crucifixion reveals a totally different picture of a crucified one who would by this time would hardly be able to whisper. And even getting a gasp of breath is excruciating. And having no ability and no power to be able to do anything more than whisper Jesus Christ cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he yielded up his life to the Father. His chin fell down upon his chest. And all of a sudden, the ground began to shake the, the earthquake that came at that moment of Jesus' death was so powerful that the biblical record says that it actually broke rocks into pieces. And the whole earth began to shake under the judgment of God against his own son who bore my sin upon his back. So rocks broke. 
graves were broken. And then, and, and the, the timing is unclear, but a select group of saints rose from the grave. And then after Jesus' resurrection on the third day, they appeared all over Jerusalem, resurrected saints. You know what comes out of the cross? Life comes out of the cross. The cross is a life-giving event. And graves were broken open as the earth shook. And a select group of many saints rose from the grave, ready to go throughout Jerusalem on Sunday and demonstrating and telling the story and talking about the fact that Jesus Christ rose this morning. And they're testifying to the reality of risen life after death that flows out of Jesus' death on the cross of Calvary. But something else happened as well. Not only the darkness and not only the shaking of the earth, but all of a sudden something happened in the temple that was unnerving. God reached down from heaven and he got a hold of the veil that hung between the holy place and the holy of holies. And God ripped that veil in half. And when God ripped that veil in half, he made the most dramatic presentation. He made the most dramatic statement of what was accomplished in the cross of Christ that we could imagine. To understand the ripping of that veil, I want you to just see a couple of pictures here so you'll be able to understand. This is a depiction of Solomon's temple. I'm sorry, this is a depiction of Herod's temple that would have been present when Jesus Christ was on earth. And I want you to focus on this building right here. This is the temple proper. When you go into the temple proper, there is a holy place. That's where the candelabra was, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. And then when you went beyond that into the back part of the building, that was the Holy of Holies. Now, let's take a step back because I couldn't find a cutaway view of, of, of uh, Herod's uh, temple of Christ's day. But this is a cutaway of Solomon's temple that Solomon built. And so when you came into this beautiful, ornate, gold-covered building, there were candelabras, there was table of showbread, there was altar of incense. But in the back part, there was another room that had the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a small box, wooden box covered in gold that contained the law that God wrote and that Moses carried down off from Mount Sinai. That was kept, among other things, in the Ark of the Covenant. And it had a golden, pure gold lid that was called the mercy seat. And on that pure gold lid, the blood of animal sacrifice was poured once a year on the Day of Atonement. There were two cherubims that overlooked. But you could not see from this space into that space because it's cut away, but there were there was a big veil that hung so you could not see from one space to the next space. 
That veil or curtain was 10 inches thick. Now you've got clothes on today. And you can look at the cloth that made your clothing. It's very thin. You could hardly even with a ruler measure the thickness of the cloth of your clothing. If you have a really, really, really bulky sweater, then you may be able to measure that bulky sweater and maybe come up with a quarter inch or so. This veil was woven 10 inches thick. It reached from the ceiling to the floor, which was 60 feet. It went from wall to wall, which was 30 feet. This veil, 30 feet wide, 60 feet tall, 10 inches thick. God reached down and grabbed a hold of it. And in one powerful motion, God ripped that veil into two. An artist's depiction of that on this last slide of the veil. Hard to see, it's in the temple and it's not a lot of lights in there. But that veil was ripped from the very top to the very bottom. What was that veil ripped to show? What did the ripping of that veil indicate to us? This is the great result of Jesus' death on the cross of Calvary. And it changed everything. It changed everything. And in Hebrews chapter 10 that I ask you to turn to, I want you to look in verse 19 and I want you to see the word having. Do you see the word having? Having therefore. Then if you come down to verse 21, you'll see and having. And then in verse 22, you'll see the phrase let us. And in verse 23, you'll see the phrase let us. And in verse 24, you'll see the phrase let us. Having, having, let us, let us, and let us. And this is tied to the ripping of the veil. Because verse number 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiness by the blood of Christ, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. Here we have in Hebrews. Now, there's the, the cosmic events of the darkness is not mentioned again in the New Testament. The cosmic event of the earthquake and the breaking open of graves is not mentioned again in the New Testament. But when God ripped that veil in two, God was making such a dramatic statement of change in the reality of everything between us and God that it is mentioned. And it is mentioned extensively in the book of Hebrews. And I want you to see just a little bit of what it says in the book of Hebrews about the accomplishment of the cross of Christ depicted by the ripping of the veil into two. So I want you to notice two realms of impact upon our lives. And the first realm of impact has to do with those that word having that appears twice. Having and having. Two things we possess. 
two things that we had after the crucifixion of Christ that we didn't have before the crucifixion of Christ. Two great privileges granted unto us. In order to appreciate this, I, I want you to look back. There's some references there in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 leading up to this because you'll notice in chapter 10 and verse 19, the Bible says having, what's the next word? What is it? Therefore, having therefore. So what he's going to say about the great privileges that we have been granted comes because of what he had just talked about in chapter 9 in the first half of chapter 10. And because of what happened, we have these great privileges. I want you to, we're just going to read without hardly any comment, chapter 9, verse number 11. The Bible says, but Christ having come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us for the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God and for this cause he is the mediator of a new testament that by means of death for the, blood, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Come down to verse number 24. Verse number 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often. Notice that. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year. With the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered. Since the foundation of the world. But now once. In the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin. By the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die. But after this the judgment. Come down to chapter 10 verse 10. Chapter 10, verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once, once, once. No recurring sacrifice. No recurring suffering. Like the priests every year on the day of atonement. Sacrificing the animals, collecting their blood, going inside the veil to the Holy of Holies, pouring out that blood on the mercy seat over and over and over and over again. 
No, no more. No more priests going in and pouring blood out every year. Once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. The priest standeth daily. Jesus sat down because the work is done. There's nothing else to do. There is no daily sacrifice. There is no weekly sacrifice. There is no annual sacrifice. The priests stand because there's always another sacrifice to make. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Come down to verse 17. Verse 17. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Can you shout amen on that? Amen. He won't remember my sin anymore. <laughs> and their sins and their iniquities will he remember no I don't have to be forgiven again next week. I don't have to have another sacrifice made next week. I don't have to go through a ceremony again next week. I don't have to go through some religious act next week. To have my sins forgiven. Because their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is. There is no more offering for sin. It's over. And Jesus sat down. His work was complete. Having therefore. Because of what the cross accomplished. That we've been singing about all morning. Because of what the cross accomplished. God grants me two amazing privileges. That are visualized in the action of God. Ripping the veil from top to bottom. What are those privileges? The first one is access. Verse number 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. I can go into the holy of holies? I can go into the presence of the Shekinah glory of God? I can stand beside the cherubim in the mercy seat? Yes! I have access to God without a priest. Because God ripped the veil from top to bottom. And no longer does the Israelite fear the presence of the Shekinah glory of God. No longer does the Israelite fear going into that holy of holies which he was forbidden to do. And no longer would even the high priest one day a year on the day of atonement with bells around the bottom of his robes that were always jingling as he walked around the Holy of Holies performing the service of the high priest on the day of atonement. The bells always jingling because if he goes into the Holy of Holies with one sin, one sin in his life, God struck him dead on the spot. 
and the bells would stop. He had a rope tied to his leg. They'd pull him out to the Holy of Holies. No more fear of the presence of God. No more fear going into the very presence of the Shekinah glory of God. Why? Because of the power of the cross. Having therefore, because all my sins are forgiven, and God will remember them no more, and I never have to be forgiven again for being a sinner and failing to meet the requirement of God because Jesus met the requirement for me. And on the cross, God poured out his judgment on Jesus Christ for all of my sin. And when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, he purchased for me eternal redemption, not present redemption. Not redemption for this week and then I have to go and, and go through some activity again to get redemption for another week. No, it's eternal redemption. It's forever. And I now have the privilege of going into the presence of the Shekinah glory of God because I stand forgiven at the cross. What a access that God gave to us. You see, Adam and Eve had access to God before they sinned. But after they sinned, God kicked them out of the garden, put some angelic beings, some cherubim there to guard the entrance to the garden lest they come back in. And access to God became a fearful thing. On the Mount of Sinai, God gave Moses for the nation of Israel, the newly formed nation of Israel. He gave him a whole Levitical system, a religious system, a system of religion that was all about access to God. And it involved a building with a holy place and a holy of holies and a veil. And no one could go into the presence of God in the holy of holies except once a year a high priest with with blood that had been shed, an innocent dying for the guilty, and with great fear and intrepidation, he would venture inside that veil and put that blood on the mercy seat and get back out because the presence of God was a fearful thing. And religions all over the world have been built around fear. The fear of the presence of God. All the hoops you have to jump through. All the things you have to do to earn favor with God that maybe you could be in His presence someday. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, God ripped the veil and said, you can come into my presence now. Without the blood of bulls and goats, you can come into my presence not through the mediation of a priest or a high priest. You can come into my presence because your sins will I remember no more. What a privilege was granted to us when Jesus Christ died on the cross. A privilege that was demonstrated by the very act of God ripping the veil to grant entrance. I now have boldness to enter in. The word translated boldness in its original usage was used of language. It meant to speak boldly or to be able to speak your mind without fear of repercussion. But then as time went on, the word began to be used wider and wider, not just of the spoken word, but also the actions of one's life. It meant in the New Testament era 
to be able to act boldly without fear of repercussion. I can boldly enter into the presence of God with no fear of repercussion, for no fear of judgment. I can go into the presence of my Creator. Do you understand what a life-changing event that was to everyone in Jerusalem? The day that God ripped the veil in two and said, you can come in to my presence through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you can come boldly by a new and living way consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh that was crucified that day. Oh, what a privilege. There's a second, there's a second amazing privilege that is granted to us. And that's given in verse number 21. And not only do we have boldness to enter into the presence of God, but and we have a high priest. We have a high priest now. We have someone to represent us. What does that mean? We have a high priest to represent us. Well, we, we already read in chapter 9 in verse number 11 that Jesus being come and high priest as a result of the crucifixion that day. Jesus Christ became my high priest through Calvary. And now I have a high priest. What does that mean? Well, Romans chapter 5 says this, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You quote that when you're witnessing to somebody or you read it to them from the Bible. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. What does that mean? I shall be saved. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Do you understand that Jesus Christ today is the high priest to everyone who's been born again. And it's his high priestly function that keeps you saved after the death of Christ initially saved you. I was justified by his death, but I shall be saved by his life. Why his life? 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. But if any, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And there's Jesus Christ, the greatest lawyer that ever lived. The greatest attorney that's ever represented a client. He's seated by the right hand of God. And every time, now God saved me over 50 years ago and it was God's desire that I would never sin again. But I, I'm, I have to admit, I have sinned again. So how can I be saved after I've sinned some more? By the life of Jesus Christ. Justified by his death. We shall be saved by his life. Because he is our advocate. Who is he? Jesus Christ the righteous. And it's his righteousness that he put to my account on the day that he took my sin and paid the eternal penalty for my sin. And now, for all these 50-some years, 
every time I've sinned, my lawyer looked over to the Father, and my lawyer is the righteous one who put his righteousness to my account. And my lawyer says to God the Father, got it covered, got it covered, taken care of. I am eternally secure by the life of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God who is my advocate. And because I have a high priest who advocates for me at the throne of God, my salvation is eternally secure so that God says, I will remember your sin no more. And the redemption you have is eternal redemption. Whoa, this is security. God granted me access. And then God granted me security so that I know I can never be lost. It doesn't matter what sin I commit in my, in my death breath. I can't go to hell. It doesn't matter if I commit an egregious sin as I die. I can't go to hell. Because I have an advocate who has already given to me his righteousness. And I'm not depending on my righteousness to keep me saved. I'm depending on his righteousness on my account to keep me saved. And Jesus looks at the Father every time I sin. And he advocates for me. And he says, I've got it covered. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that we have not a high priest which cannot be touched. Uh, those double negatives always mess with my brain, so I always read it without the two negatives, so I can just, you know, I'm a, I'm a simple-minded individual. For we do have a high priest who is touched. That's what it means when you put the two negatives. We don't have a high priest who can't be touched. We do have a high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows how weak I am. He knows what it feels like to be me. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When he ripped that veil, he said, come on in. And he gave me security by assigning to me a lawyer who's never lost a case, who advocates for me. And because of his life at the right hand of God, I have security. 